1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. shriver and i'm gary shriver and this is the how to love lit podcast the podcast designed to approach the western literature most commonly taught in secondary schools around the globe through the lens of history psychology and general literary analysis
0: we hope that whether you're reading the book for the first time as a young student or a lifelong learner or whether you teach this book every year we give you something new and interesting to think about Today, we're exploring the final two chapters and the most interesting themes of Steinbeck's most widely read book of Mice and Men.
1: But first, before we do, we must have the Christy fun fact.
0: Okay. Again,
1: this is by request. You may not know that Christy has a minor degree in Russian.
0: Oh, that's true. Long time ago. I don't speak it much anymore or at all. But I, I did a tour of duty in the great city of Almaty in, the, uh, in Kazakhstan okay. back in the day.
1: There you go. We would have a copy of uh, Pravda hanging up on the wall in our uh, in, in our den. Of course, I have no idea what it says. And part of the reason why you don't speak Russian is because I don't speak Russian.
0: Well, that's yep. okay.
1: Anyway, um, so uh, if you're listening to this podcast the day it's released, then tomorrow is the last day of September. And in Memphis, we are almost at the end of the first quarter of school, but more importantly, we are in the throes of the most exciting time of year in the southern part of the United States, and that is college football season.
0: That's right, and in our part of the country, that is serious business. My two daughters, Anna and Lizzie, are students at the University of Tennessee, and we are Tennessee Volunteer Fans. Go Vols! Our next big game is this Saturday versus an extremely noble opponent. Noble? Yes. The Georgia Bulldogs. They almost won the whole tournament last year.
1: Tournament as in you mean national championship?
0: Yes, the national championship.
1: All right. Yes. Well, I want to put in a plug, I'm actually a Central Missouri State Fighting Mules fan, but I do support the Vols. Anyway, so it's definitely going to be a challenging game. And uh, the Vols have had a tough couple of years um, but we've learned that as fans, there's more to a game than just what goes on in the field. And that's the great tradition of the tailgate.
0: That's true, tailgating. We get to hang out before the game, sometimes for hours, eating, drinking, be with friends and family. But most notably, playing cornhole. I wasn't really familiar with this game, actually, before I came to the South. But it's basically when you set two wooden boxes like apart from each other. And then you try to throw beanbags and get them in the hole. I'm not all that great at it, to be honest.
1: Actually, you're not good at it at all. But
0: But I still play. But you
1: get amazingly lucky. Yes, that's Uh, true. (laughs) Anyway, there's even a national championship that they show uh, for this game on ESPN, which is hilarious.
0: So that's our kind of segue into our discussion today, because I kind of think... If um, Crooks were a real person, he would totally rock Cornhole and be the champ.
1: Instead of being the uh, the horseshoe pitching champion.
0: Yeah, he'd convert.
1: I was wondering how we were going to segue that to, <laughs> to Steinbeck's great work from SEC football. But anyway. Well,
0: you know, uh, we're... We're opening up our chapter, and they're playing a game. Okay. Crooks is schooling all the other ranch hands in this Sunday afternoon game of Horseshoes.
1: Uh, Right, and that's what's going on at the beginning of Chapter 5. So, we open what what is probably uh, Sunday afternoon entertainment, and everybody's around playing a game. So, Christy, how are we going to break down our discussion starting with that today?
0: Uh, That's exactly where we're going to start, but before that, I would like, because this is the last episode for this book, to kind of recap everything that's happened up to this point. Remember in chapters one and two, we opened up with this kind of semi-garden-like Eden experience where nature is at peace, and George and Lenny spend their first night together by the Salinas River under the view of the beautiful Gabalin, I guess that's how you would pronounce it, I don't know how to pronounce those mountains, out there in... uh, In California, we learn that Lenny has a fascination with petting soft things and he likes to carry around a dead mouse in his pocket if he can get away with it. We hear uh, the dream. For the first time, George tells Lenny that one day they're going to own a farm and he is going to get to tend the rabbits. In chapter two, they arrive walking down this lonely road to this isolated ranch and enter a Bunkhouse, which is basically a a community of itinerant workers who are there at this ranch, quote, bucking barley, as they say. We're going to meet a series of people. Several of them have severe deficiencies, either personality-wise or even physically. We have Candy, Crooks, Curly, Curly's wife, and Carlson. We also are going to meet Whit and, of course, the king of the ranch, Slim. Slim. And we learn that most, most interestingly of the characters, I kind of think is Curly, because he's a small man, a great boxer, and he likes to beat up big guys. And his wife, who will remain nameless, they call her a tart. A
1: tart. And which a Lulu. Is,
0: which is their word for a sketchy woman.
1: Okay. And In Chapter 3, we find out that Lenny and George have had to leave Weed, California, because Lenny touched a girl's dress and she cried rape. So Slim gives Lenny a puppy. Carlson kills Candy's dog. Candy wants to come with Lenny and George to buy the Dream Ranch. But the most interesting thing that happens is Curly picks on Lenny and George tells Lenny to get him. So Lenny crushes Curly's hand and Curly has to be taken to the hospital, leaving Lenny to wonder if that means he wasn't going to get to tend the rabbits. And in chapter four, all the guys go out of town to Susie's place leaving behind Candy and Crooks and Lenny. So Lenny is going to wander into Crooks' room that is outside in the barn, away from the others because he's black, as Crook tries to explain. And this completely goes over Lenny's head. It is through the articulate voice of Crooks that Steinbeck voices the idea that so many people are wandering about lonely, looking to fill the dream, and they just never do. Lenny, of course, can't understand the thing that Crooks is talking about and uh, talks about him and George's dream. Crooks, for a brief moment, once in into the dream and is crushed with the advent of Curly's wife showing up. She comes in mostly out of boredom but ends up using all kinds of hideously offensive language to intimidate and belittle Crooks before running off, being run off by Candy with the threat of the other men coming around.
0: And that brings us to chapter 5, where we're going to open our discussion today. In the past episodes, we've kind of gone through the analysis on the front end of the discussions of the chapters, but today I think we need to kind of reverse that. So let's kind of talk through chapters 5 and 6, and then we can discuss some of the most commonly themes that people are developing in their discussions of this book uh, in schools across the world, and see what you think is the most interesting takeaway from this book, because I feel like it's a little bit controversial. And why is this particular book one of the most widely read American books in the whole world, which to me, in some ways, is kind of a very unusual selection. So in chapter five opens up, like all the other chapters, with this description of the natural environment. We're going to be back in the barn It's Sunday afternoon. All the field hands are outside except for Lenny. I want to point out that at this point, uh, George is just one of the guys. He's not taking care of Lenny. He's left Lenny unsupervised to play with the puppy. And Lenny has done a bad thing.
1: Yes, Lenny has. Lenny does what he did with the mouse he pets the puppy too hard, and uh, he pets the puppy to death in the barn. And he's interestingly angry at the puppy because the puppy has died while being petted.
0: He's too little.
1: Yes. And in the course of this uh, conversation between Lenny and the puppy that he's just killed, now we will enter Curly's wife one more time into the barn. And uh, she wants to talk, but Lenny says no. And Lenny's terrified that George finds out that George will be upset with him and George won't let him tend rabbits and all those kind of things. He's already worried about having petted the puppy to death. And now he's talking to the one person that Jordan's totally forbidden him to talk to.
0: And she tries several times to, to bring him in. And he really is resistant. And she keeps saying, I get lonely. You can talk to people, but I can't talk to nobody but Curly, else he gets mad. How'd you like to talk to, not, not, not to talk to anybody? And of course, Lenny, you can't use those kind of tactics on him. I ain't supposed to. George is scared I'll get in trouble. So he's super focused and he's really trying to, and you see this all the time with Lenny, he's trying to not do the right thing. So she's going to counteract really by telling her story.
1: She is. And she uh, Lenny's a sounding board. He's not even really a participant. So she talks about how she could have been famous. Uh, She could have been in the pictures... And then she talks about how she met Curly and ended up marrying him very quickly. And she's going to confide in Lenny that she doesn't even really like Curly.
0: That he ain't a nice fella, which of course we've seen that.
1: Well, true. And so you want to know, then why did you marry him nearly the day you met him? But anyway, that's part of the tragedy of this character that's supposed to be set up.
0: True. And then, of course, he tries to um, explain to her, we're going to have a little place. I'm going to have a house and a garden and a place for alfalfa and the alfalfa is for the rabbits and I could take a sack of rabbits and get it all full and then I'll take it to the rabbits. And there's where we're going to get dangerously close to what becomes a very sad incident because she kind of goes on to, well, what do you like about rabbits? And he's going to say, well, I like to pet things and I like to pet things that are soft. And she's going to say, well, everybody does. Look at my hair. Pat right. my hair.
1: <laughs> and he says, I like to feel silk and velvet and, and all those things. And so, yeah, we've got the setup, and so we know what's coming. So uh, I guess we just get to the point. Lenny does what Lenny does. Lenny has no impulse control, and when he panics and he gets scared, he has no reasoning and ability. And so Curly's wife begins to think he's too aggressive and she panics and she starts to scream and then what happens
0: And then Lenny was in a panic his face was contorted I'm going you know, to just read it straight yeah. She screamed then as Lenny's other hand closed over her mouth and nose please don't she begged oh please don't do that he says George will be mad she's going to struggle violently and it all ends with uh, he's going to say don't you go yelling and he's going to shake her, and her body flopped like a fish. And then she was still. Berlini had broken her neck.
1: Which is probably one of the most well-known points of the whole story.
0: True. But you shouldn't overlook the very next thing that he says. Um, well, after um, he notices that she's, ba- she's dead, and he's going to kind of blame her, and he's going to realize he's yeah. taken it too far. I'd done a real bad thing. I shouldn't have did that. George will be mad. And he said, and hide in the brush till he come. He's going to be mad. And the brush till he come. That's what he said. Uh, and then, of course, there she is laying in the straw. And It says this, The meanness and the plannings of the discontent and the ache for attention were all gone from her face. She was very pretty and simple, and her face was sweet and young. Now her rouged cheeks and her reddened lips made her seem alive and sleeping very lightly. So... Her agony, that anger, yeah, that anger (laughs) that she was exercising over all those men is over.
1: Right, and then she's in some odd form of peace at this point.
0: I think that's what we're supposed to see. Candy's going to walk in. He's going to see, oh dear, not good.
1: And he finds the wife and uh, initially thinks she's sleeping. Then he panics and he goes out to find George because they all immediately assume one person was responsible for this.
0: And I want to point out that Candy talks about his greatest fear. He's going to he say...
1: In the, let, let me set this up. In the midst of a murdered woman laying there on the ground and then panicking, trying to figure out what to do, what is Candy's worst fear?
0: You and me can get that little place, can't we, George?
1: <laughs> I think they're fixated.
0: His dream. He said, no, 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 my dream. My dream's going to be gone, too. And George is going to say... I think I knowed from the very first. I think I knowed we never do her. He, us to like to hear about it so much, but I got to thinking maybe we would.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, and so not only are they dealing with the tragedy of this woman's death, they're dealing with the tragedy of the death of all that they had hoped for in their future.
0: And George is going to sit there through this page and process what he wants to do, and he's going to say, Lenny never done it in meanness. All the time he done bad things, but he never done them mean. Now listen, we got to tell the guys. they got to bring him in, I guess. they ain't no way out. Maybe they won't hurt him. I ain't going to let them hurt Lenny. Now you listen, and they kind of make this plan, and he's going to tell them, I'm going to walk out, then you get the guys, you're going to walk in, and... Uh, we're going to go from there, but we don't really know what that means.
1: Well, the, the plan is George doesn't want to look like he was there for the death and get implicated. So he's going to go away. They'll tell the group and then George will be brought back in. But we're going to find out there's a reason why George wants to leave here in just a moment. So they agree to the plan. George leaves. But here's what's interesting. Candy stays behind to curse the dead body of Curly's wife. Right. And, it, you know, he calls her a, a tramp, and you messed things up. You wasn't no good. You ain't no good now, you, you lousy tart. And I'm thinking, wow, what anger right there to curse the dead person.
0: Because she took something from him. I could have hoed in the garden and washed dishes for them guys. And so he realizes she stole his dream too.
1: And it says in the end of the paragraph, his eyes blinded with tears. And he turned and went weakly out of the barn and he rubbed his bristly whiskers with his wrist stump. So they all know whatever dream we had put together in the last two chapters is now dissipated.
0: Of course, Girl Curly's gonna come in and he's not sad that his wife is dead. He's angry and he, because his honor has been besmirched, I guess.
1: And he's very sensitive about his besmirchment of honor.
0: No none of that. So he's going to go get a gun, and it's clear that there's only one plan, and the plan is we're going to shoot him.
1: Right, and Carlson will run back to the bunkhouse to try to get his gun to be part of the the whole mob.
0: And that's the end. They leave Candy behind, laying in the hay, and they go off to hunt Lenny down. That's Chapter 5.
1: Right, it moves much more quickly than the last few chapters we've talked about.
0: Then we're going to open up with... Scene number six, if you want to think it that way, with the, in the very same place where we started the book, kind of, we, we've come full circle, we're down by the deep green pool of the Salinas River. It's late, and it's beautiful, but notice in very archetypal form, a snake has glided into the pool, mm-hmm. meaning that the snake always gets into the garden, Yes. and there they are, Lenny's there thinking about George going to wear him out. He's going to get in trouble and he begins to hallucinate, which I'm not really informed, to be honest about what all these hallucinations mean. And they were cut out of the play when it was performed. So I don't know, uh, for what reason they're here and what reason they were taken out, but he's kind of developing this idea that this is all being processed Mm -hmm. inside, a of Lenny, do you have any ideas about that?
1: Well, no, uh, I don't have any huge insights, but it's it's obvious that Lenny is in a panic state. He's gone to the spot he was instructed to go to. He's waiting to be in deep trouble with George. And when he has this basically a hallucination about Aunt Clara and the rabbit, they're both scolding him in the same exact language and in the same exact tone with the same words that George has always scolded him. So he's just got this this internal war going on uh, in his state of panic and it's just more of the same you've messed everything up for everybody you're no good we've always knew you would cause problems that whole story.
0: And he never means to be bad and he knows he can't stop himself and he knows he can't control whatever it is but he knows that it's a bad problem. Right. So we get to this George comes quietly out of the brush and there's a rabbit that's kind of scuttling back uh, into Lenny's brain like the Mm -hmm. big rabbit. So he's coming out of the hallucination into the reality and he's expecting, Lenny's expecting to get worn out just like what happened at the beginning of the chapter when he had the dead mouse. Mm -hmm. He can't realize or doesn't realize that this isn't the same at all.
1: No, and George's demeanor has tr- changed dramatically. He's calm. He's resolved. He's actually patient at this point.
0: And so he sits down and he says, I'm not mad at you. Uh, and, and they go through a very sweet discussion and they're going to go back over everything that he did. And he's going to say, we're not like the other guys. Guys like us got no family. They make a little steak and then they blow it, blow it in. They ain't got nobody in the world that gives a hoot in hell about them, but not us. Tell about us now. And George is going to say, not us. Because, because I got you and I got you. And, of course, you're supposed to have just tears in your eyes because right. you know what George is about to do. But Lenny doesn't. He's going to say, we got each other. And that's what that gives a hoot in hell about us, Lenny cried in triumph.
1: And then they have a short discussion about the dream.
0: hmm And he tells Lenny to look up into the mountains as he tells them the story.
1: And?
0: He's going to say, we got a little place. And he reaches in the side pocket and he brings out Carlson's Luger, snaps off the safety and the hand gun lay on the ground behind Lenny's back. He looked at the back of Lenny's head, at the place where the spine and skull were joined. And they can hear in the background, the men are coming. So George is going to say, go on. George raised the gun and his hand shook. He dropped his hand to the ground again. And Lenny's going to say, go on. And you have this irony Mm -hmm. because he wants him to say, go on with the The dream. But what really is going to happen he's going to go on. With shooting him.
1: Yes, and he pulls the trigger, and he shoots Lenny in the exact same spot that Carlson had shot Candy's dog. I don't know if there's any symmetry to the story there, but there's the tragedy. And then all the men show up after the deed is done.
0: Yeah, and then, of course, uh, they have to have the story... You know, George is going to lie, and Carlson's going to say, How'd you do it? George is going to say, I just done it. Did he have my gun? Yeah, he had your gun. And you got it away from him, and you took it and killed him? Yeah, that's how. So Carlson kind of creates the fiction. And then we have kind of an interesting way to end the book. Slim is going to come up to him, and he say, Come on, George, me and you go, you'll go in and get a drink. And he's going to say, you had to do it, George. I swear you had to. Come on with me. And he's going to lead George away. Curly and Carlson are going to look back at him. And Carlson gets the last line of the whole book.
1: (laughs) Which is so strange.
0: You want to read it?
1: Slim says, you had to, George. I swear you had to. Come on with me. He led George into the entrance of the trail and up toward the highway. And the last sentences of the book are... Curly and Carlson looked after them, and Carlson said, Now what the hell you suppose is eating them two guys? And the story ends.
0: It's just awful.
1: Well, I'm going to guess what's bothering them. Uh, well... Two people dying in the same day, <laughs> tragically, that's that's troublesome.
0: Carlson has no feeling, and Curly right no, there next doesn't.
1: to him. No, they represent all the detached empathy or lack of empathy uh, in the whole story.
0: So, we've gone through the book chapter by chapter, and I want us to talk about the themes kind of in a similar way. Major theme by major theme, and of course there could be themes that we won't hit on that people have discussed. There's many, many ways to kind of look at this book. So I want to start with the most obvious, which is the title. And I haven't really brought up the title much because next week we're going to do an entire episode on Robert Burns and the poem to a mouse, which connects to this book because that's where the line from the title comes from. So there's a poem called to a mouse written by this Scottish poet named Robert Burns. And this is the paragraph or the stanza that it can't, that... The phrase is taken from. You want to read it?
1: Yes. But mouse, you are not alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy.
0: So the idea in the poem, it's kind of a very naturalistic idea, but the idea that Burns was talking about is sometimes, no matter what your dreams or your plans are, there's really nothing you can do. Fate just runs its course. You can have the best-laid scheme, and it can go awry. Uh, and we see this in the in the book. We see in the beginning they have a plan. In chapter one, we hear George tell Lenny his dream, and then the last thing that George tells Lenny is his dream. But unfortunately, it's right before he shoots him in the head. Yes. So there's this sense that we suffer as humans, from the randomness of life. Kind of like the randomness of all those solitaire games that George keeps playing in the bunkhouse. There's no real rhyme or reason as to why some people win or some people lose or why some plans work and some plans are sabotaged. We can be killed because of our innocence and because of our own frailty. And I think we see this in the character of Lenny. He has this... Real big handicap, and but yet he's innocent, but he's also strong, but he's also frail. So, in some ways, Lenny is, is kind of like the mouse in Burns's poem, except that in real life, we're not mice, we're not subject to whims like mice, we're people. And so, in that sense, this leads us to the second, I think, probably more dominant theme perhaps in the book and that's the theme of friendship this this book really is in many ways about the power of friendship
1: it is and i feel like one of the major themes having read it from the historical psychological side is about loneliness the the opposite the flip side of the coin of of friendship and how driven people were to uh get out of their loneliness. And it was a a concern of all the characters in one way or another.
0: Right. And so these themes are going to be clearly juxtaposed next to each other throughout the course of the story. So we see this committed brotherhood of Lenny and George, really from George being committed to Lenny uh, from start to finish. They're kind of defying this randomness of destiny by saying, we're going to be together. We're not going to live this life of the loner. Isolation that we saw in the very first sentence of the book when it says this is the town called Soledad, lonely. Mm-hmm. Everyone is lonely. This the ranch is isolated. The itinerant nature of the job that these men have leaves them isolated. And really, the reader, you're kind of an isolated entity when you read the story. You never get to leave the ranch. Those guys go into town or something, but you're always. Stuck kind of there.
1: Somewhere around the bunkhouse. You hardly ever get to leave. You <laughs>
0: never get to leave uh, except to watch Lenny die in the end. So Slim is going to admire this bro- brotherhood and he's going to comment on that. The owner of the ranch finds it strange. And of course, at two different times, Candy really wants to commit to it. And even Crooks is enticed by this sense of camaraderie and this hope that maybe I don't really have to live the loneliness that's been my existence up to their point. So there's something in the brotherhood of mankind that makes life meaningful.
1: Um, Yes, it's a hope, it's a dream uh, that they don't even have a plan to achieve. In fact, most of the characters live in this world that is somewhat based on exerting power on each other, but it appears that none of them like it. Uh, They don't want to be a part of this naturalistic evolutionary cycle. They want to bond. Even Curly's wife, a mean, seductive woman, finds a way to be sympathetic to the reader because she can't find a way to live in a brotherhood. She only lives for power, her economic power, sexual power, racial power, whatever, so you can be powerful, but that's not where peace is. It's where it's not where happiness is. And she is arguably the most miserable character out of all of them.
0: Right, and I think you know Crooks has it set up really that he should be the most miserable because he's out with the animals. He's racially segregated. You know, he's never really had much. He said I was, he was raised in isolation before he got to the ranch, but he still has something that she doesn't have. She's completely, totally alone, and she's mean because of it. So this brings us to the most obvious thematic motif that we've already talked about, just the pervasiveness of loneliness among humanity. Yeah. And that's something that people identify with even today. Everyone is lonely in this book, and Steinbeck really strikes at that. People are going through life for whatever reason. It could be their own fault. It can, maybe Curly's wife, you could say to some degree it's her fault. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's the social constructs. Certainly, prejudice plays a role Age plays a role. Biology plays a role. Lots of things can leave you isolated. But what does it matter? The social I- the social isolation is still something that no one in this book can get away from. Right,
1: and it's nothing that it's not something they conquer either.
0: No, they don't conquer it. You see this pursuit and kind of you see this maybe with the animals and the rabbits and the mice. You know, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking. But it's super elusive. It's almost imaginary to a lot. To a lot of people, which brings us to the real cliched, I feel like concept. When I hear people talk about this book, the first thing they always say is, "Oh, it's a book about the death of the American dream." And I kind of really take it to task a little bit. Maybe it's because I wasn't raised in America, and so I, I'm really, I'm really interested in this idea of why the dream of success belongs to the American continent. <laughs> Because everybody I know in other parts of the world, they're also pursuing something. And they're pursuing to make the best for themselves, the best for this family, to have upward mobility. So America, sure, we've been in a place where a lot of people have found that, and that's great. But it's not the only place uh, where that dream exists.
1: That's true. And I don't like the cliche either, the death of the American dream. Uh, And I don't like it because it's poorly defined. I feel like is especially even as a literary device. I know they say it to invoke a sadness or a sense of loss or wistfulness, but, uh, and people can go, Oh yeah, that is sad. But I want to make this comment about the American dream. And this is not original me. This is an idea that I've uh, found in research. It says the American dream, first of all, was a concept that was, uh, written by a guy named James Adams in 1931 interesting that he would coin this phrase
0: around this time in the
1: worst part of the depression. 32 was the worst year of the depression. Um, anyway, it, it, this is a vague definition of what uh, what we loosely define as the American dream. It's a national ethos of the United States. It's a set of ideas about democracy, rights, liberty, opportunity, and equality In which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, as well as upward social mobility. Okay? Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. So,
0: that... It's it's a dream.
1: Well, of course it's a dream. And uh, it has all the aspects of most dreams. It's like, it's elusive. (laughs) It's, it's something to aim at, uh, but if you don't hit it, does that mean there's a failure that's, that's occurred because you don't get there? So uh, anyway, I'm not a particular fan of using the phrase "The Death of the American Dream" because it's, uh, it, it, we don't I mean, we're not the only group of people that have a dream, and it's used negatively to connote a huge failure that, that I don't know that applies.
0: Well, I think it's not wrong to say that Steinbeck was definitely concerned with the plight of working people. You see that in The Grapes of Wrath. You see that in this book. He wants people to be aware that people are at different places. And to me, that in and of itself is engaging the dream in a very American way. You see this egalitarianism coming through, that there are groups of people that have been marginalized, maybe. uh, And it's part of our national constitution to be reflective enough to try to bring everyone in as much as possible and that's something that you can be proud of and sure it's not going to be perfect it's not perfect it's still not perfect I mean this is you know 90 80 years later and we're still struggling because how do you make I mean we all like to come up with a system that brings good people up and puts bad people down but how do you keep the curlies down and the and the good people up it's just not easy to do
1: well we're dangerously close to delving off into politicalization of this book at this point so i'm going to pull us back in right here and just say that history has a very long arc and the dream gets reinterpreted by every generation to to go back to steinbeck when he's talking about Well, let me say this. If the death of the American dream applies to this book, it's him lamenting it. He has not gone to a call for action. He has not taken a political stance that says this is how we get the American dream back. He didn't do any of that. He just says "This this is the disappointing end of life. So, therefore, my conclusion is I don't come away from this feeling like the death of the American dream is a significant theme to this book.
0: Well, it's definitely not what's going to make it last through generations, so I feel like there's got to be something deeper there, and I really think it comes down to this. Now, this is my opinion. Lots of people have different opinions, and this is something that you can take to your book club and really talk about because there are some unanswered questions when it comes to how this book ends. But you have to look at this book in a very naturalistic way because that's how it was designed to yes. be looked at. So Steinbeck is looking at this book to see people as they really, truly are. So you see that on one side, but on the other side, it's an allegory. In other words, these people are bigger than what we really are. Each character is a type of a person. And when you look at all the different types, you have to come back to George Milton. Mm-hmm. George Milton is the everyman. In other words, he's, Anybody
1: can substitute their spot in the book with George.
0: Yes, you're George. So you have to... You're supposed to be thinking about this final chapter and asking yourself the question, what would I do? Because George is stuck in this existential double bind. He loves this guy His friend, he's been taking care of him for years. But there's another part of George that wants to be with the guys. He talks about it all the time. He rails, I could be this. Mm -hmm. So George has two conflicting dreams that rage inside of him. Just like every one of us, that's the humanity. It's not easy to resolve all these problems inside of you. So what do you do? He takes responsibility and he makes a choice. There's no doubt when you read this chapter a couple times, that when he went back to that, to that bunkhouse, he was getting that gun to right. kill Lenny. You, know, you could say, oh, he's trying to defend himself against uh, Curly, but I don't think there's any indication that that was right. ever his plan.
1: Well, you bring up a great point. George has two dreams, and when you have two dreams that conflict, you're in what's called a state of cognitive dissonance, and people can't be comfortable in cognitive dissonance. They have to resolve one way or another.
0: And you have to make a decision. And sometimes the decision isn't easy. And Steinbeck does not judge George. You don't walk away with a sense of condemnation, even though murdering your best friend is, to some degree, really a bad thing to do.
1: It is. But interestingly enough, after he shoots Lenny, Slim, who is the king of the ranch, gives him grace.
0: He gives him grace. And saying, like, the king says, you're a human. Yes, you are a fallen man. Yes, that was, you know, maybe an imperfect choice, but it doesn't make you a bad person. And to me, that's how this book ends in a positive way. Because we all will find ourselves in places in our lives where we feel like we have no good choice. This is bad. And if I do this, I'm going to hurt this person. If I do that, I'm going to hurt myself or I'm going to hurt this other person. And you're stuck with making an impossible choice. And you can live in a lot of guilt for the rest of your life for the choice that you made. And Steinbeck is letting you off the hook.
1: Which I think ultimately is what speaks to people around the world when they read the book. They have put themselves in George's position They have their own experience of difficult choices. And at the end, Steinbeck doesn't offer judgment.
0: You're okay.
1: You're okay. Sorry, you had to go through that, and that's bad. But in uh, in this world, that's what happens.
0: And he walks off, and Slim puts his arm around George, saying, And you can still live in companionship and friendship. You don't have to be alone. And that's a nice message for all of us.
1: Well, do you think that sums up the book for us? We gave it a go. We did. We did. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to hear people's uh, opinions on this and any feedback. Now, I would like to say that that finishes up of Mice and Men for us. Like we said next week, we're going to do a poetry supplement from Robert Burns' poem. But I would like to say that we've been reading some dark literature for the past few books, that's true. And, you know, we've gotten into naturalism and we've gotten into a lot of postmodernism and, uh, and, and all different kinds of the things. The evil
0: of man. The,
1: yes, the, the isolation of man, all these things. So, we're going to take a, t- a different direction on the next book. So, Christy, tell us about the next book that will not be this heavy.
0: I'm excited about this next book. It's The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, one of Brazil's most celebrated and probably most widely read author. This was his breakout book the book that made him famous it's a positive book and I really think it's not as well read or well known maybe as of mice and men but I really think you're going to enjoy it so come with us and let's jump in to some little Latin even though this takes place in Spain but it's <laughs> okay. it's the writer's Latin and we will have some fun
1: okay well great so um, if you enjoy being with us for Mice and Men, come along with us for The Alchemist as we go down that road and catch up with us uh, when we talk about Robert Burns' his famous poem. Um, and uh, please join us on Facebook. Join us on Instagram. Check out our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com. If you're an educator, we have teaching materials that you can use for every episode we put out. So join along with us, and uh, we love having you along for the ride.
0: Peace out.